Welcome to Mind Tricks Radio, where we'll explore contemporary topics in psychology through interviewing creative and innovative thinkers in the field. I'm your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan. Thanks for tuning in. We're here today with Dr. Rob Whitley, Associate Professor of Psychiatry at McGill University and a research scientist at the Douglas Research Center in Montreal. He is author of a new book, Men's Issues and Men's Mental Health, and writes a monthly blog for Psychology Today called Talking About Men. Rob, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Aaron. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. And I know it's really cold over there in McGill in Canada. So I don't envy the cold weather, but it's great to talk to you uh, in a nice warm indoor setting there. Well, I did ask you if your budget would allow me to fly to Hawaii to do the interview today. But sadly, it was probably a bit over your budgeting. So I'm going to have to yeah. do it on telephone. Well, when Spotify picks me up for $10 million a year, I'll be sure to fly you out. Okay. I would appreciate that very much. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I'm really interested in the subject about men's psychology and mental health. You know, when we were planning this interview, I was thinking about it and I have the distinction of falling into that demographic. I'm male and I'm also a middle-aged male, which I know you wrote a recent blog post about middle-aged men and psychology. And I started thinking about it and I realized like, you know, uh, there isn't a lot of people talking or writing about men's psychology and definitely not middle-aged men's psychology. And I started thinking about, well, why is that? It's, it's a little odd because actually males make up, you know, roughly 50% of the world population and a big portion of them are middle-aged men. And today's discussion is not just about middle-aged men. But I thought that that was kind of odd and interesting. And I'm, I'm really interested in talking with you today to try to understand a little bit about why this might be and what kind of psychological issues are important to men and men's mental health. So to begin with, I'd like you to maybe tell us a little bit about yourself, the work you do, how you became interested in this topic about men and mental health issues in psychology and why it's an important topic to discuss. Well, I am an associate professor in the psychiatry department at McGill University. Uh, I'm also a researcher at the Douglas Research Center. That is a research center which is attached, physically located in one of the biggest mental hospitals in Canada, one of the old style granite 19th century hospitals. We have a lot of inpatients and we have a lot of outpatients who come there now. So I've been immersed in the mental health field for over two decades now. And I uh, became interested in a the wider issue of gender and mental health many years ago when I was doing research studies and I realized that men and women would often respond differently to different types of psychosocial stress, to different types of life events that they might experience, to even the experience of emo emotional distress. Um, and that led me to do several studies in women's mental health and also several studies in men's mental health. So um, even though I focus on men's mental health, I, I write a blog for psychology today on men's mental health. Uh, and I just recently published a book entitled Men's Issues and Men's Mental Health. Even though I focus on that, I, I do have a background in working on women's mental health. The short summary is that, that men and women do respond differently to these events. Like I said, these need to be documented 
and assessed. And another issue which I talk about a lot in my book and my writings is that there are different modalities of healing. Uh, that if you do have a mental disorder or you are suffering mental stress, there are many different ways that you can take steps towards your recovery and that you can heal. There is medication, there's talking therapies, they're the ones we often hear about, but we know from social and cultural psychiatry and gender research that there's ritual healing, there's religious healing, there's action-based therapies, there's occupational therapies, there's exercise therapies, etc. And part of the work I do, part of my mission I see is to try and get the message out there that there is not always a one-size-fits-all solution to mental health issues and that these typically vary by gender and that we're not necessarily funding the right programs and we're not giving the right levels of choice that allow individuals to choose the modalities of healing that are most suited to them. Well, is it an accurate perception, first of all, that men's mental health issues and men's psychology tends to take a back burner when it comes to the research and the literature compared to other demographics? I would say that gender issues in general do not receive much attention in mm. the discipline of psychiatry. When we talk about psychiatry in the old days, we used to say psychiatry was driven by what was known as the biopsychosocial model. So looking at biological factors, psychological factors, and social factors. What's happened recently is that people have said it's transmogrified into a bio-bio-bio model. And the three bios are uh, genetics, psychiatric genetics, neuroscience, and psychopharmacology. Mm. And there isn't a lot of room or space in there to look at kind of sex differences and gender differences. In some regards, we've gone kind of backwards rather than forwards. Social psychiatry in general has been kind of marginalized, let alone any focus on kind of gender issues and the gendered experience of mental distress and the reactions to mental distress. And this has been driven by various trends. For example, the National Institute of Health in the US in the 1990s, they called it the decade of the brain. And they saw that the future of psychiatric research was really focusing on kind of brain science and neuroscience and genetics and psychopharmacology. So we are not seeing a huge amount of research in men's mental health. And like I said, little of it is focused on these alternative modalities of healing. And obviously I do have to say that the pharmaceutical industry funds a lot of mental health research and psychiatric research. And obviously they're funding the medications that they produce and they're not typically funding the kind of psychosocial interventions which we do know can be very helpful for for men men and women but particularly men in certain cases so there's all these trends which are intersecting to lead to a situation whereby men's gender and mental health is neglected and men's mental health is even more neglected in terms of research and action you know you talk about some really important issues in your book that have to do with male psychology. And I'd like to talk about some of them with you briefly and get an idea of why these issues are important to the topic of men's psychology and mental health. And one you talk about is this idea of gender stereotypes of men. What are the gender stereotypes? What do they typically look like and why are they important well, let me start by giving you a brief summary of a research project that I've been conducting for many years. So sure. I'm interested in the link between media, how the media represents mental illness, and media coverage of mental illness. 
And myself and my colleagues, we did an analysis of media coverage of men with a mental illness, and we compared it to media coverage of women with a mental illness. What we found, we found a pattern emerged, and there's obviously variations between journalists and news sources, but we looked at a wide range of media, and we did find a pattern emerging. And the pattern was that when a woman with mental illness is talked about in the media, she is typically talked about with kind of compassion, with sympathy, with understanding, with, with a discussion of kind of her recovery and, and future progress. And when a man with mental illness is talked about, there is typically less sympathy. There's more of a focus on that this man may be a threat to the social order or the moral order, more of a punitive approach, sometimes even kind of a mocking, derisory approach. And we believe that this shows how the media can represent men and women differently, but also represents a bit kind of popular thinking about men and women with a mental illness. And that this stereotype is a stereotype that's well known to many men, especially men with a mental illness. And that leads them to not want to disclose the fact that they have a mental illness. It means that they would not want to get treatment because they, they know that if their supervisor at work, for example, if their teachers, if their neighbours found out that they had a mental illness or was being treated for a mental illness, that they may also be suspicious. They may react in an unsympathetic manner. They may feel this person is a threat, that they may associate this person with the possibility of crime and violence, which is another factor we saw in the media coverage, which we mm. didn't see in the media coverage of women. And we see this in Hollywood when we think of the big representations of males with mental illness. You have, uh, you know, Psycho, Silence of the Lambs, Hannibal Lecter, uh, these kind of people. Yeah. How often do you see a, a good guy, an average Joe with mental illness in Hollywood? who's making some good progress in his recovery and who's living a, a productive life just as somebody with diabetes or asthma can still live a productive life despite having an illness. What kind of measures did you use when looking at the media? How did you assess that? We gave us each article a series of kind of simple binary codes. So one of them, for example, was, is crime and or violence a theme in this news article? And we found that the articles about men, crime, violence, danger, threat was much more significantly mentioned than the articles about women. Even though actually in the media at that time, it was Canadian media, there were a few like high profile murders committed by women with mental illness. For example, there was a woman who killed two of her children um, during that study period who had a mental illness. And, and when the treatment of this woman was much more, like I said, sympathetic, empathic, looking at the situational and contextual factors that led her to led to this tragedy, whereas when men with mental illness were in similar situations, it was more or less, you know, lock them up, throw the key away, this is what men are like. Mm -hmm. In other research studies, I have found men reporting similar things. Men tell me when they're at a bus stop, you know, some of them have visible signs of mental illness. They have a tremor. They have a, they, they're at the bus stop where the mental hospital is. There's one single bus stop next to the hospital I work at, and they say, you know, people look at them in a certain way, will not sit next to them and they'll be treated in a stigmatizing manner. Sort of this view that a man with mental illness is a psychopath or violent or dangerous and should be feared and sounds like there's a real stigma that comes along with that. And it can manifest itself in the areas of life which are very important to men. So in the workplace, for example, especially men who work in occupations like the military, the police, 
security, transport, manufacturing, where there's exposure to kind of toxic chemicals or dangerous mm. machinery, which are male-dominated professions where you know, a lot of blue-collar men, working-class men, end up in their careers. We can see a lot of suspicion in those domains where the boss you know, might, might be just for a lack of education, will imbibe those stereotypes. And if they find out, you know, Joe on the, on the manufacturing floor is seeing a psychiatrist, is Joe going to get the promotion or is Joe going to get the, the business trip to, uh, to Florida or is, is uh, Mark who doesn't have those issues? Right. Uh, it right. all creates a wider atmosphere where men tend not to talk about their mental illness and tend not want to go to treatment and we hear all these negative terminology that men are in denial or they suppress their feelings. Or, but for many men, they're performing a cost-benefit analysis in their head and the costs of seeing a psychiatrist admitting they've got a problem going to treatment outweighs the benefits sometimes for them at least. But that makes a lot of sense. Like That is something that we hear a lot, that men are very out of touch with their feelings and they don't express their emotions and then it sort of bubbles up and expresses as anger. But I could understand the argument that you know, if there's a perception by them that by opening up and allowing themselves to be vulnerable and seen as having issues that they might be stigmatized or, or ostracized because of that. And so it's a bit of a catch 22 there, because obviously, as you know, as a psychotherapist, like I want my male patients to be able to experience and express their full range of emotions, but does society really want them to do that. So that's a very good point. And you, you talk about some other topics, gender empathy gap and male gender blindness, those seem to be related to what we're talking about. Could you say a little bit about those themes? The gender empathy gap is a well-known phenomenon whereby men who are in distress tend to elicit less empathy and less sympathy than women who are in distress. This is kind of well-known for centuries and sometimes is actually known as benevolent sexism because it's the idea that men treat women like children and men treat other men as kind of competitors or as perceive them as people who should be strong and uh, able to deal with their issues. So the gender empathy gap is kind of well proven. For example, there was a recent study published where men and women were given a series of vignettes about, for example, someone had been fired at work and no detail was given about why they were fired. And people were asked, you know, how much sympathy do you have for this person? And if they knew it was a woman, the sympathy in the vignettes was a lot higher than if it was a man. And then people in the study were also asked to describe why they thought the person was fired, even though there was no information given. The common responses for women was that it was unjust, that it was due to sexism, or there was a lack of understanding. And the common response for men was that they, they, they had done something wrong, or they deserved it, and they had violated work regulations. So we have this vignette research. We have other research, for example, that shows that empathy and sympathy is actually related to muscle mass, size, and age. Hmm. So this is actually very interesting. So men typically tend to be kind of taller and more, have more muscle and be uh, larger than women. And we know that, for example, men who are very well built, who are strong in vignette research and other research, somebody observing that person in pain would feel that that person has more capability and feels less pain. For example, a, a petite five foot woman who, has, who is very thin and uh, in her 20s. Some people say this is due to evolutionary psychology. It's kind of biological reaction that men evolves to have sympathy with smaller creatures, one could say, um, whether it's kind of children or women who are 
like I said, typically shorter and, and thinner than men. So the kind of the the gentle giant male is really at a big disadvantage. You know, I, I've met several really big men who are very, very sweet, but if I understand the gender empathy gap, like the idea would be like, well, this person is this big, tough guy. If something bad happened, it's gotta be him that created the issue. Yeah, it's if you ranked, you know, all the different groups of humanity on scale, the, the big, tough men who have uh, maybe don't know how tough they are inside but the ones who look tough who are tall who are muscly who are maybe larger they would they would elicit lesser empathy in certain situations compared to children women we know it's related to age as well so for kind of young boys there's empathy until they reach you know 14 15 16 and then when they become more kind of manly a lot of the empathy disappears if they're in uh, difficult situations so it's like I said, it's been related to evolutionary psychology to kind of biological reactions as a theory called neotomy, which means the presence of childlike features in adulthood. Um, that's also been related to empathy. So women or men who have big eyes, who have uh, bigger heads, a bit like a, a child or baby, and less kind of hair, etc. That again, they elicit less empathy in certain like situations than people who have the opposite. Interesting. How about male gender blindness? Is that related to this topic? It's certainly related to the wider issue of men's mental health. So it's a phrase that was coined by um, two of my good colleagues in the UK, Martin Seeger and John Barry. And it basically refers to a kind of blindness to male suffering and to the issues that men may be facing. A blindness in popular society, a blindness in government, a blindness in institutions like workplaces, schools, universities, etc., um, so to give you an example, there is a White House Council on Gender, which has recently released a kind of document which was uh, to address and, and recognise gender inequalities and to help repress some of these issues, uh, which is certainly um, welcome, these kind of initiatives. But this uh, document never mentions, hardly ever mentions the word men or boys. It's completely skewed towards women and, hmm. and girls. And it doesn't recognize, for example, that boys are much more likely to drop out of high school than girls are, that men are much more likely to kill themselves than, than, than women are, that men are much more likely to suffer workplace fatalities and injuries than women are. This male gender blindness we see in so many different areas. We see it here in Canada. We have a minister for, for women. We don't have a minister for men. I've done work in... Uh, European Parliament and they, they release these documents about gender and mental health and I remember reading one of them I was asked to read it by some people in the Parliament and uh, I think it mentioned the words like women and girls over 300 times and men and boys less than 50 times and when men and boys was mentioned was mentioned they were the finger was pointed at them as the lead cause behind the troubles of women and girls mm -hmm. uh, so uh that's a kind of form of male gender blindness. Yeah, that's very interesting. So I hear what you're saying is that in some of the metrics, men and boys have much higher rates of different kinds of mental illnesses, but they're mentioned a lot less frequently in some of this policy and, and program. So that's sort of a paradox there. So that's very interesting. I'm just curious about this idea of childhood socialization. What happens with a social and emotional development of boys that, I don't know, maybe different than girls, 
that could lead to some of these interesting psychology dynamics in the mental health wor world that makes it more challenging or difficult for them. In my book, I have a whole chapter on this issue. Mm. And I think there's been a lot of nonsense written about this issue and a lot of stuff said about this issue, which has been given too much airtime, which is based on ideology rather than scientific evidence. In North America and Canada and the US, approximately 40% of marriages end in divorce. And many children are born before people get married out of wedlock. And to answer your question, one thing I can say is that we know that one thing which is very important for the psychosocial development of young boys and for the prevention of mental health and for good mental health is the presence of a father in their life. And there has been dozens of studies which have shown that boys who were raised in an intact family, with a mother and father, have much better outcomes than those who were raised by single mothers, for example. And this really gives the lie to the narrative that's put out there that masculinity is kind of bad for your mental health or that masculinity is negative for the mental health of young mm. boys mm -hmm. and young men. Uh, it's actually the opposite. A, a lack of masculinity and a lack of masculine presence is, is not helpful for uh, young boys and for young men, teenage men, boys particularly. Um, and the reasons for this should really be obvious, at least maybe to those of us who were fortunate enough to kind of grow up in intact families. The mother is typically the kind of nurturer in a relationship and the man is typically the, the person who sets boundaries and maybe administers more discipline and, and will teach the young boy and the young man will be going out fishing and going out climbing rocks or going to sports games. And obviously mothers in this modern world, it's all mixed up a bit, but this, this is the traditional way of, of acting. And we do know that that is very important, that, that kind of teaching, that mentorship, that male-on-male -male mentorship and not only are many young boys and men not getting that from their own fathers due to kind of divorce and out of wedlock births, uh, but if you look at daycares, for example, if you look at elementary schools, over 90% of daycare personnel are female. Elementary schools, it depends on which survey you see, but it's around 85% to 90% of elementary school teachers are female. So you can have young boys who are living in a, with a single mother who go to daycare, go to elementary school, they've had no men, male figures in their life for 10, 11 years. Mm -hmm. Maybe the only male that they see is, a, is the janitor in the school or the crossing guard. Uh, they've had no positive male influences, no positive male role models. And this is something which needs to be said more. It's slightly controversial or a bit taboo. Some people don't like it when you raise this, but... Uh, these are facts and we need to discuss them. Well, it makes perfect sense because children spend so much of their development learning how to model behavior from the people who are taking care of them. And if you have a boy, obviously they're probably going to model their male characteristics based on a male role model. And they obviously they'll internalize a lot of very positive, important issues from a strong female figure as well but the kind of role that a male would play in modeling that behavior, like you say, some of the rough and tumble stuff and you know, the, the boy energy stuff that they, if they have a male role model showing them how to do that appropriately and within certain boundaries and limits that are sensible, I, I, it just makes sense that that kind of modeling would be important there. What I would like to add is a, 
when those figures are not present in a child's life, uh, that young that boys, as they grow into men and they become adolescents, they crave respect from other men, from mm-hmm. older men. And this can leave them ripe for exploitation, or it can leave them vulnerable to getting involved in the wrong communities, yes. communities, gangs. I just did a research study, recently completed a research study of men who are involved in the seduction community, mm-hmm. otherwise known as pickup artists. I'm sure you know that the listeners have read the book The Game by Neil Strauss all those years ago. Like I spent two years talking to men in those in that community, getting to know them, hanging out with them. Uh, and many of them came from single mother households and said that one reason they joined the community was because they were looking for kind of male role models and the gurus of, of the pickup community. They have their YouTube channels, they have their products, they teach people on the ground how to do this stuff. And they ended up in this community. Other research shows, like I said, men getting involved in, in criminal gangs, in uh, house angels, in extreme political movements. So it's certainly something that we, uh, it's a social problem as well as an individual problem. Yeah, for sure. And I can say from my clinical practice over the years, probably most, if not, well, most of my male patients who had had experiences of being sexually exploited as children or adolescents usually came from an absent, uh, absent father figure in the picture. And so they gravitated toward other male adults that they wanted to connect with, who then exploited them and took advantage of them. One thing I know you talk a lot about in your book, one area is about workplace issues that impact men's psychology and mental health. And I know there's probably some overlap with women, but there's some that are probably more commonly found in the workplace dynamics for for men that lead to mental health issues. I wonder if you could talk about some of those and why they're important. So the U.S., Bureau of Census Statistics um, produces uh, amazing granular level statistics about the relative proportion of men and women in different occupations. There are numerous occupations which are overwhelmingly male, uh, the military, law enforcement, transport services, manufacturing, fisheries, uh, oil, gas. So all these are kind of manual work uh, where you're using your hand, using your body, where there's a lot of danger and possibility of being injured in the military or law enforcement in the line of duty, possibility of injuries due to machinery failure, acute injuries, also possibility of uh, chronic back pain, chronic issues. So what we find actually, which is, is interesting, I talk about this in my book as well, is that many of the men in those industries end up needing to see a doctor about medical issue, about these kind of pain issues, chronic pain, acute pain. What typically happens is the doctor will prescribe them opioids, for example. The person will take the opioids. Opioids are biologically, have biologically addictive properties. So even people who are in the police and military who are very anti-drug, who are don't uh, never consider themselves somebody who's vulnerable to getting addicted to any drug can end up being put on a course of prescriptions. And when they try and come off, they find it very difficult. They end up taking more of the drug. Some of them end up going onto the streets to buy the drug. Some of them try and compensate by alcohol or cannabis or other substances. And this leads to the well-known fact that men make up the vast majority of people who are suffering in this opioid crisis that we're seeing mm. all across the continent. 
that men make up the majority of people who experience substance use disorder, which is the technical clinical name for people who are addicted to a variety of substances that we know of. Uh, men make up 80% of overdose deaths, deaths mm-hmm. whether it's from alcohol, opioids, other drugs. Um, so when we talk about the workplace issues, we need to look further down the chain and see that these kind of workplace issues can lead to these negative outcomes. That gets back to sort of like that biological model you were talking about, just like, let's, let, let's look at these issues that men are having and medicate them with potentially very addictive medications and not address other things going on with it. Well, in talking about the more typical kinds of jobs, stereotypically that men have, I'm wondering about job stress and strain. Like for me, my job is not that stressful, like talking to people and relaxing in my air conditioned office. It's funny. People will often say to me like, wow, you must be really stressed out talking to people with mental health issues. And actually I look at them and I say, you know, I think I'd be a lot more stressed out being 60 feet up in that tree, cutting the branches off or running around in Baghdad, worrying about getting bombed or on the streets of the police force, stopping angry motorists and dealing with potential criminals. There's a lot of more unpredictability there. I would think, I, does your research and findings show that just the nature of the jobs are stressful for men? I mean, it's important to distinguish between physical stress and psychological stress. Yeah. And some jobs involve both physical stress and psychological stress, and some jobs have more of one than the other. So, of course, if you're in the military, if you're in law enforcement, you have a lot of physical stress because, you know, if you're in the infantry, you'll spend a lot of time running and, uh, you know, you could be uh, attacked or assaulted or killed. There are jobs like mining, fishing, forestry, again, where there's a lot of physical stress and some psychological stress, for a bit, but a bit less. I, I do think it's important, though, not to imply that men who are not working in manual occupations or blue-collar occupations have it easy. There is a huge amount of psychological stress on men who are working in professional occupations, lawyers, accountants, medical professionals, educationalists, psychologists, people in in these fields. And we shouldn't diminish that because that can be real. As as Shakespeare said, uh, heavy is the head that wears the crown. So is, is psychological distress for people who are in those kinds of professions different for males than it would be for females? Well, if we look at the typical pattern of household and every household is different, but there are patterns when you look at the patterns. So a typical household pattern in the US and Canada is what's known as the 1.5 earner household. What that means is that the male, and obviously it's very different and we have choice, everybody can decide what they want to do, but talking of averages, the average is a 1.5 earner household. Usually that means that the male goes out and earns a whole salary, earns as much as he can, and the female will work part-time, 0.5 of the time, and spend the rest of the time maybe spending more time with the children on household issues, home economics, etc. And the men who are working that full-time job are often doing overtime, they're working longer hours, that they're, they're willing to 
relocate for work, to travel for work, because they want to bring in as much money as they can, and it's kind of expected in relationship, because that money is really what is needed to keep the mortgage payments, to keep the, the savings account high enough in case there's an emergency, to pay for the education of the, of the children and the kids. In kind of typical terms, yes, for, for the men out there in the workforce who are in those situations, the psychological stress may be more than a woman in a relationship who's working part-time, 0.5 of the time, two days a week or 2.5 days a week. Typically in a job where there might be less expectations, less leadership, that's again something which is kind of overlooked. Men are typically the primary household breadwinner despite changes over the last three or four decades. Yeah, and Rob, do you think that idea that the sort of the man as the breadwinner in the situations and families where that's the case, that there really is that stress that they need to bring in the extra money and work the overtime in order to support the family? Or is that more of like a socially constructed idea that they need to go out and work tons of overtime and you to use a classic term, probably incorrectly, workaholics, that they're, they're pushing themselves because of a belief that that's their role and they need to do that? There is a mixture of reasons why men work these kind of hours. So just to start with a few facts, we do know that men tend to work longer hours than women, that men tend to relocate more frequently than women but, uh, for work, that men tend to work more dangerous jobs, physically hazardous, where there's more risk of death or injury. For some men, that is exciting, and that's an adventure, joining the military, for example, joining the Navy or the Air Force and uh, and for some men, working longer hours is linked to their meaning and purpose in life. But it certainly is true. And in, and in this day and age where we have you know, high inflation uh, coming in, we've just had COVID where many people lost opportunities, didn't have, had to spend their savings. I don't know where you are in Hawaii there, Aaron, but uh, here in, in Canada, in Vancouver, Toronto, the big cities, housing prices are through the roof. And a, an average couple, if you imagine a a male policeman and a female nurse trying to buy a house in Toronto would be very difficult based on their kind of average salaries. Yep, so, yep, we have high housing prices, that's for sure. <laughs> we just limited, uh, limited supply in the yeah. island, right? Yeah. So there are some very real financial you know, yeah. concerns. There is a mix of reasons, but we often overlook the real financial concerns that, that men are facing and, and talk about it as if they're, they're doing this this employment to try and prove that they're a man or prove their masculinity. And mm. that's, I think that's rarely the case, actually. You've talked a bit in your writing about some events and some situations that seem to affect men differently than women. And I'm thinking specifically about the impact of divorce on men and also kind of the stress involved with an unmarried man. And in what ways do men experience those situations differently than women? Again, I think it's important to start with some well-known facts that are publicly available. So we do know that when a divorce happens and there are children involved, that in over 85% of cases, the, the, the female ends up getting primary custody and the male rarely gets that custody. And depending on the nature of the agreement, it is quite common that the male will only get a chance to see that child once or twice a month in very constricted circumstances, meaning that the influence that the 
the, the bonding between the father and the child isn't happening. And many men talk about this as a what they call a living bereavement. I've heard that phrase many times that they, they have a child, but they feel bereaved because they hardly see this child. This has a very negative effect on their mental health. It has been implicated in many suicides. So if you look at coroner's reports of suicides, uh, frequently the di divorce and separation from their children is, a, is frequently mentioned. It is something which is uh, logically very distressing for many men, if we can imagine it. And for women, that is not something that's happening. Most women, they have custody of the child. They're there. They're, they can raise the child how they want. They can raise it with the values they want. They can raise it with the food they want to give the child and well, the efforts of play. So, What's the deal with this custody issue? I mean, I sort of like when I think about it, the old 1950s model was that men were incapable of parenting their children. They just go out, bring a paycheck and come back. And the women are the parents. But I would have thought that recently that concept has sort of shifted is that not the case? Or I mean, why is it that women are disproportionately getting so much custody? I mean, that is something I've not deeply researched, but I, I do think that it is related to these kind of Victorian gender stereotypes, which still persist to the present day, that a man's job is to be a, a provider and a breadwinner, and a woman's job is to be a, a nurturer and a caregiver to children. And despite some progress to trying to reduce these stereotypes from, from men and women alike who are, who are fighting to, to kill these stereotypes. They're still out there. Uh, I believe the, I have heard from men who uh, tell me that the judiciary in countries like Canada and the US are not necessarily well grounded in the real world, that they are typically very wealthy people who live in uh, very wealthy neighborhoods and don't understand the realities of life for kind of ordinary people. I also get the sense that there's something having to do with men's psychology that makes it a little more challenging for them to be not married or not in a relationship when it comes to social relationships and friendships, connectedness. What's going on there? Well, we have this uh, phenomenon known as MGTOW. I don't know if you've heard of that, M-G-T-O-W. Um, so they're known as kind of men going their own way. Mm -hmm. uh, there's these whole um, phenomena, groups of men out there. There were the pickup artists I talked about earlier. There are these men going their own way. There's incels who you may have, may have heard, you would have heard of, obviously. There's uh, this trend in society for men not to get married and not some even not engaging in relationships with women. And we do know from the mental health research that single men unmarried men, divorced men, tend to have worse mental health than men who are married, mm -hmm. uh, tend to have you know, slightly, it's not huge difference, but slightly higher suicide rates, higher rates of depression, higher rates of substance use issues. So it, it is a phenomenon that we can't ignore and sit here neutrally and just pretend it's not happening because it is happening. Well, what are some of the reasons for that? Why are men having, single men having worse outcomes whether i suppose if they're divorced they're now on their own again or they never got married the migtoes what's leading to the worst outcomes i think there's different phenomena behind the different subgroups of men so i think for the divorced men often it's related to not being able to see their children mm -hmm. often financially they will have to send support to the ex-wife or to the mother of their children 
meaning that they're basically often supporting two households. They're supporting their own household where they live now, and then they have to send money to support the household of their wife or their children. So that places them in severe financial strain. And I think for the younger men, maybe those who are like never married, there are still kind of stigmas and stereotypes about never married men. There are insinuations that, you know, such men may be homosexual, for example, which is still stigmatized in many parts of our world. There's insinuations that they're kind of left on the shelf or there's something wrong with them, and that maybe they're kind of a threat in some way uh, to the moral order. We see that manifest in many, many areas. I, I gave an example in my book where there are many airline companies who will refuse to allow a single man to sit next to an unaccompanied child. Yeah. So if you or I got on a plane and an unaccompanied child sat next to us, we would be asked to move. Yeah. Whereas if two, if a single female sat there, she would not be asked to move. Yeah. The assumption that men have more tendency to kind of pedophilia or to abuse a, t- a child, and that's been challenged many times in courts and people have received compensation. But we see that in, in many in many areas uh, that, that single men, and especially those of a certain age, are kind of stigmatized and labeled, and that can affect their mental health. Very interesting. When you think about what would be helpful to improve mental health outcomes for men and to make things better for them? Well, there's some exciting new evidence. There's been some recent research studies which show that the kind of interventions and programs that are helpful to men's mental health are those which are kind of bottom-up, grassroots-based in civil society rather than those which are based in official health services at hospitals or psychology clinics or psychiatry clinics. So one example I talk about in my book are known as men's sheds, men's sheds. A men's shed started in Australia and they spread across the world. They're basically like youth clubs for older men. They're a, a shed in a neighborhood where there is a place to do a bit of woodwork, a bit of carpentry, a bit of metalwork, some gardening, some cooking, trading stuff. They started in Australia and men who were isolated and lonely, maybe had some mental health issues, were kind of given a prescription to go to these men's sheds and make some friends with some men, create some stuff, learn some stuff maybe mentor people if you have a skill that you would like to share. And the evaluations show that these men's sheds are very helpful to men with mental health issues. Another thing I can talk about are known as bushcraft interventions, so bushcraft interventions. Basically, men learning to fish, maybe learning to hunt, learning to survive in the wilderness, learning these are the mushrooms that are going to poison you, these are the mushrooms you can make a nice omelette with, and these are the mushrooms that make you high learning about the plants that are out there in the world. But there have been interventions, bushcraft interventions recently created, and they've actually been shown to be very effective in men's mental health. Another big thing here in Canada, and probably in Hawaii as well, is kind of like indigenous modalities of healing. So we know that men in indigenous communities will often be supported by some elders who will take them doing some of these bushcraft activities, hunting, fishing, or kind of sweat lodges, kind of traditional ceremonies and rituals. In my book, I talk about these kind of bottom-up civil society interventions, um, often which are surviving on a shoestring budget and through volunteers. If we're going to think about public financing and using tax dollars, maybe we should be giving kind of block grants to these kind of organisations, you know, three-year, four-year, five-year block grants, allowing them to 
kind of flourish and thrive rather than the traditional way, which is to put lots of money in big hospitals, big psychiatric clinics, traditional medical interventions, which, which are helpful for people with the, you know, very severe schizophrenia, bipolar disorder. But for men who are you know, struggling after a divorce, maybe with depression, which is the most common mental illness, you know, maybe we should start thinking and funding these about these bottom-up programs because these the new research and the new evidence is showing that these are, can be really helpful. Yeah, it seems like it's a relatively low-cost way to reach people, actually, especially if there's mentorship involved with that and relatively inexpensive materials, you know, picking and frying up mm -hmm. mushrooms or some carpentry work. Like, a, it seems like a very low-hanging fruit when it comes to providing opportunities for men. Yeah, we see it in like peer support groups for military veterans as well. They've been mm -hmm. very helpful. Military veterans who are suffering from PTSD set up their own groups where like the older, more experienced guys are mentoring the younger guys. And often all they need is a, a kind of space to meet in a room and maybe, you know, a secretary or one or two paid staff and yeah. some part-time salaries. And uh, Edmund Burke famously talked about the little platoons of society. Mm -hmm. This is where... That the kind of caring and help is coming from for people who are in vulnerable situations. I think my message in the book is that we're not, we could better harness the kind of little platoons of society to help people uh, in, in mental distress. Uh, one reason I'm saying this is also because we do know from surveys of men that men actually tend to prefer kind of action based modalities of healing compared to talk based modalities of healing. Yeah. So there, there are many modalities of healing. One does involve sitting across a desk and talking face to face with a psychologist. Uh, and I, I'm not going to advocate putting people like you out of a, a job because that's an important <laughs> modality. But we do know that men like to do exercise. They like to talk shoulder to shoulder rather than face to face. But building up trust with another group of people will allow them to kind of disclose and talk about their issues and maybe help one another. So these kind of action-based modalities of healing, like I said, men-shared veterans, peer support groups, bushcraft interventions, something where there's an action involved, there's a skill involved, they can be really helpful. And we know men kind of prefer, often prefer that than the, the talk-based or the medication-based. Rob, any final thoughts you have on this subject of men's psychology and mental health? Just to build on what I just said, I think choice is incredibly important in a mental health system that we need to have a more comprehensive mental health system where there's room for these bottom-up initiatives to emerge and that they can be, be funded and supported. In terms of men's mental health, to, to look at the science and look at the evidence and get away from these kind of ideological narratives or to get away from these, uh, frankly, sophomoric kind of expressions like toxic masculinity and, and move towards a nuanced understanding of men's mental health. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being on the show and talking with us about this. You're doing really wonderful and amazing work up there at McGill. So keep it up. And your writings are really wonderful on your blog at Psychology Today and your textbooks just sounds awesome. So keep up all the great work, Rob. And thanks so much for your contribution. Thanks for having me, Aaron. And uh, good luck with the show. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Mind Tricks Radio. I hope you have enjoyed the program. For more information about Mind Tricks, you can go to my website, www.waikikihealth.com. 
Be sure to subscribe to Mind Tricks on your preferred podcasting host to be notified of new episodes of Mind Tricks. Please take some time to give Mind Tricks a good rating and review wherever you are listening. It really helps get the word out to new listeners. And please like and share Mind Tricks posts on Twitter and Facebook by following your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan.